This week on WealthTrack, leader Jason Trenard on the macro theme shaping the economy and markets. I think in much the same way the financial crisis of 2008-2009 legitimized an extraordinary monetary policy, I think this crisis is legitimizing uh, big deficit spending, not just in the U.S., but you're also seeing that in Europe. Strategas is chief investment strategist on how to invest with them. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation. Clearbridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. We do not invest in a vacuum. What is happening in the world around us affects the markets and companies we invest in, which is why macro matters. It makes sense for an investor to ride strong, sustainable currents rather than fight them. So this week, we are going to identify some of the biggest trends that have been forming around us and are gaining momentum. We are also going to identify forces that are losing power. And we have chosen a financial thought leader as our guide. He is Jason Trenert, co-founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of Strategus, as well as its chief investment strategist. Strategus has been voted a top macro research provider by institutional investors for four years in a row. It is also a WealthTrack sponsor. Since the 1980s, investors in the U.S. have been riding a wave of falling interest rates and slowing inflation, as well as stunning technological innovation, the digital revolution being the prime example. Now, all have accelerated during the pandemic. Investors and employers of the new economy have flourished, while the average worker, especially those without a college education, has fallen behind. Manufacturing jobs have moved overseas, and for the most part, lower-paying service jobs have taken their place. What used to be a largely full-time employer-based workforce is now populated by gig workers, contract employees responsible for their own benefits and retirement plans. With the emergence of the global pandemic, Trenard and his Strategas team are reassessing some of the changes already underway and how the pandemic and, most important, the policy reaction to it have altered the outlook. I think in the short term, short to intermediate term, the, the pandemic is, is clearly deflationary to, just due to the, it, its impact on employment as well as, as well as rents, which are a very big part of, uh, of the inflation baskets. Certainly certain parts of housing are, are appreciating in certain parts of, of the U.S., but, but globally, real estate is something that's taken, uh, clearly has taken a hit. And obviously, there's a lot of pressure on wages because the unemployment rate is so high. Having said that, it is very clear that deficit spending is seen as the way out, not just in the United States, but also in Europe. And I think in much the same way, the last financial crisis legitimized quantitative easing, uh, monetary policy, a very extraordinary monetary policy. I think this crisis is going to legitimize very, very high government spending and deficit mm-hmm. spending to get ourselves out of it. And that brings up the specter of inflation 
let's say, past the intermediate term, past the next two or three years, there could very well be an inflation issue. Japan has been heavily indebted for years with low interest rates. So why do you think that's going to lead to inflation? Japan, I think, is a very special case. There are two, two things that work there. One is that Japan had a very high savings rate when it embarked on a period of, of very high public spending, which was able to fund. They were able to internally fund their, their deficits. The other change is that it, it's a more insular society. There are meaningful differences between the U.S. Uh, and Japan or Japan and, and many of the Western countries. I think U.S. in particular is a very... It's a very diverse country that it, without a lot of savings to begin with, and therefore it's much more volatile politically. I, I think part of the reason why you're seeing this move towards populism has a lot to do with a perpetuation of very low interest rates, which as we've talked about before, tends to benefit wealthier people more than the average person, particularly the average person that doesn't have a lot of savings or certainly doesn't have a lot of financial assets. And so I, I think what we're going to see here in the U.S. is not much forbearance for a continuation of 20 or 30 years of deflation. Uh, I think you're going to see much more political volatility as a result, and as a result, perhaps much higher inflation as a way to counteract um, the impact uh, of deflation, particularly on those less well off. So if you're wealthy, you tend to have assets, and you have both financial assets and you have you know, real estate as right. well. And so those benefit in a low inflation environment. So if you own stocks and bonds and the Fed is pegging interest rates, short-term interest rates, close to zero, as we've seen really since 2009, the, the prices of financial assets, both stocks and bonds, skyrocket. But if you're just someone with a CD or just a, a savings account, or retired and um, in, in investing in the bond market. Right. right, or if you have muni bonds or you're getting less and less income. That's the problem with the, the strategy. You don't want to have deflation forever. You want periods of time. You really want a business cycle where there are times where inflation picks up and you actually, believe it or not, have real recessions which shake out the overall economy. That allows for more growth. That allows for healthier allocation of assets over time. I know it's very painful to do that. In my opinion, it's a much better way of allocating resources, much better way of allocating capital over the longer uh, term. And I think it tends to help more people. The impact of the pandemic is that it has encouraged this deficit spending and it has encouraged more government spending, more public involvement in the economy. And therefore, this is a trend that's probably going to continue for a while. Until we can get the economy open again in a real way, I think you're going to have to rely on a lot more government spending. That it's just, you've done, there are certain industries that will take years to get back to where they were, uh, which means that employment is going to be under pressure. And so there's going to, the government is going to have to step in. And this is almost more like a warlike footing, mm-hmm. like World War II, where we thought it, it was worth the price to borrow against the future for the benefits, obviously, of winning the war. I think in many ways we're making the same uh, decisions now. The trick will be when to appropriately, it, this isn't like a war because it's not necessarily going to be clear when it's over and when the appropriate time to take some of the stimulus away may be. 
So in that regard, it's complicated for policymakers, but it seems to me that both fiscal and monetary policymakers are all in. Jason, the, the big investment winners and losers from continued low inflation. The biggest winners will be will continue to be financial assets. The losers would be at the margin real assets like real estate and like commodities. And that's, I think, true for the short to intermediate term. The hard part, of course, is that it's very difficult to know when to remove fiscal and monetary stimulus. It's not clearly apparent. And that brings up the specter of higher inflation longer term. In that sense, it seems to me real assets would start to do better and then stocks would start to really outperform bonds. Interest rates. I mentioned that we've had 40 years of falling interest rates. The pandemic has suppressed them even further. What's the outlook for interest rates? I think it's very similar to the outlook we have, we would have for inflation, which is in right. the short to intermediate term. It, it seems to me longer term interest rates in the states at, at the least are going to start to drift a bit higher. But it's going to be difficult for them to go up a lot because there's still $16.5 trillion worth of negative yielding sovereign debt outside the United States. People are still going to be quite attracted to the dollar and dollar-based fixed income in the United States because they're actually getting taxed, in a way, on their bond holdings outside the U.S. Interest rates should rise as the economy starts to pick up, but there's probably a cap pretty low cap to see how high they could go in the short to intermediate term. And the winners and the losers from a a continuation of low interest rates? The winners would be financial assets, particularly stocks, highly leveraged Mm -hmm. stocks, private equity would be the big winners. I think bonds at this point, it's hard to see a lot more capital gains that could be wrung out out of bonds, really in all parts of the bond market, just given how low interest rates already are. And another pandemic impact has been the incredible increase that we've seen in public spending and government spending. And so tell us about who the winners and losers are from that trend. And is it a trend that you expect to continue for the foreseeable future? I think, uh, as I may have said before, I think in much the same way the financial crisis of 2008-2009 legitimized quantitative easing and extraordinary monetary policy, I think this crisis is legitimizing uh, big deficit spending, not just in the U.S., but you're also seeing that in Europe, which was very hesitant at the start of the pandemic to to do so. And so ultimately, that type of spending, uh, I'm sorry to say, it tends to benefit large companies more than small companies. And, And I tend to think it's a myth that large government is bad for business, if large government is bad for small business. It's good for large businesses that have access to the lawyers and the consultants and the lobbyists that help them get the goodies they need from the political class. And so that's something that uh, has been going on a long time, but I, I would imagine it'll continue as the size of government gets larger. And why doesn't it help small business? Aren't they beneficiaries of government largesse as well? Not to the same extent. There's also a difference here because large companies also have access, more access to the capital markets, so the stock markets and the bond markets, and small businesses are more dependent upon bank loans who are rationing credit right now because of the pandemic. But also, I think the larger the government gets, the more they tend to write the rules and the more regulations really tend to benefit large companies who can get the rules written in their favor. 
one of the mega trends that seems to be developing, and it certainly started with the global financial crisis and it has now just exploded with the pandemic, is government spending, public spending, and the government's involvement in the private sector, basically to keep it afloat because of the lockdowns caused by the pandemic. Is that a trend that you think is going to continue now that the government is involved in a big way? And if so, are there winners and losers? I, I do think it's going to continue. I, I think it's going to continue, at least initially, because it's necessary for it to continue, which is to say it's, it, you really need the government assistance if you're going to continue to have a big portion of the, lock, uh, of the economy locked down. You're going to need to replace that income. It's also going to continue probably after that, because let's face it, and this is true of politicians of every uh, political stripe, politicians tend to get reelected by giving things away as opposed to taking, taking things away. And so it'll be very difficult once you start down this path to, to spend a lot less money. So um, in, in my opinion, longer term, the biggest beneficiary from, from greater government spending is largely going to be things that are leveraged to inflation. So that would be real assets, gold. I also think that certainly tips would be one other place where you would see maybe some benefit for investors to have some sort of inflation hedge on their fixed income. Right, the Treasury those, Inflation Protected Securities. Right. right. So th those, in my opinion, those would be the places where you would see probably be the biggest beneficiaries from, from government, from extra government spending. We have, at Strategus, we have a portfolio called the, uh, the Policy Opportunities Portfolio, which we've talked about before, which is a portfolio that uh, invests in companies that have very intense lobbying efforts. And I also think that's something that is important. As the larger government becomes, the more important it is for companies to know how to navigate the shoals of Washington either to get in front of something good, a uh, government contract, or to avoid regulations or taxes or other things that might hurt their business. So lobbying matters and it's been profitable. I mean, that policy opportunities portfolio has shown that companies that have big lobbying budgets actually do well. Yes, they do. I think the only one exception to that has been some of the very large tech companies for the, who, for the most part, until very recently, have been seen as largely virtuous they, they saw themselves as virtuous and others saw them as virtuous. And so they did not be, need a big presence in Washington, D.C. That's changed clearly in the last couple of years. And it's, it's happened under the Trump administration, but I would imagine it's going to uh, happen under many administrations, given the size and power of these companies. They're going to have to spend a lot more money in Washington for protection. Another change that, that you have uh, pointed out in the past is that you think that public equities are going to basically do better than private uh, investments. And of course, over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen a big shift into you know, private investments, into private equity, private placements by big institutional investors and by endowments and away from public equities. But you think that's going to change in favor of publicly traded equities. Why? I do. I think private equity is really is very dependent upon interest rates and to a lesser extent inflation. But and in many ways, in that way, private equity has been one of the biggest beneficiaries from the drop in, uh, in interest rates over the past 40 years. 
It's also benefited from the fact that people are looking for lower volatility, institutional investors are looking for lower volatility with equity-like returns. Having said that, if you think, as I do, that over the longer term, interest rates are likely to rise and inflation is likely to rise, leveraged assets are, are less interesting. And the price- Because they're going to get hurt. If, they're going to get you, hurt, right. Yeah, their financing is going to cost is going to go up and it's right. going to be painful. Right. right. So public equities, it seems to me, are at the margin, I would say, cheaper than private equities. And so over the longer term, that would suggest that their returns will be better. A big shift that we've already seen, of course, in the public equities market is the shift from active managers to passive index fund type of investments. Talk to us about what you think is going to happen with that shift. And of course, I've been saying this for a long time, and also all my clients are active managers, so I'm I'm not exactly coming at this from a completely disinterested point of view. But I, I feel quite strongly that today, If you look at the S&P 500, there are five companies that make up about 25% of the index. And so one of the strongest arguments for passive investing uh, has been risk mitigation through- Diversification, right. right. And here I would argue that indexation is actually giving you a lot of concentration risk to five very large companies. I think active managers who have an ability to scale back those positions, that have an ability to change their mind, are going to have a much better chance of outperforming the indices over the longer term. I also think that some of the, I would say that some of the volatility that you're likely to see over time in the currency markets, in the the interest rate markets, is going to be something that tends to make the differences between winners and losers much greater. Very low interest rates keeps a lot of very weak companies in business. And it makes it very, very difficult to beat the indices because they go up almost regardless of what's happening in the economy. I tend to think that will change as uh, you have more volatility in interest rates and inflation. And and Jason, ever since the global financial crisis, uh, we've seen a big shift in fund flows as well from stocks to bonds, even as interest rates have reached record lows. So why is that happening? And what do you think the trend is going to be? Is that trend going to continue? Yeah, and it's been a very tough period of time, really for close to 40 years, for people to bet against the bond market. Right. And so, uh, and people keep saying, just wait, it's going to happen. It seems to me there are, at least in the United States, there is a limit to how low interest rates can go. I, I feel very strongly, it's very unlikely uh, that you're going to have negative interest rates. On the, the Fed will choose to have negative interest rates in the United States. And as a result, I, I think that probably the bond bull market is in its final innings. So I would be quite a bit more careful. The good news is you'll be able to pick up more yield over time. But, you know, the bad news is that it's, you're going to have to tread more carefully, it seems to me, given the amount of stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, that's been pumped into the economy. And another big trend that has come about through the pandemic is the move to online in just about everything. So who are some of the big winners uh, from this move uh, to online? Well, I think, Consuela, it's going to be in services that people really in the past had never really thought were capable of being done online en masse. So that would be like medicine. And that's one of the things that there's there's always some good that comes out of anything that's not good. And maybe one of the good things that's come out of the pandemic is that we're learning that 
doctors can see patients much more easily uh, online. It's not quite the same thing, but in many cases it can be a, a good stand-in. And that, to me, is a permanent change. I'd also say education, online education, is something that is being used more and more. It's not a perfect substitute, but it is something that has made people really reconsider how much they're spending and how and who they're spending money with, particularly as it relates to college education. There will be certain companies, particularly smaller companies that are at the vanguard of these trends in telehealth and online education, that will clearly be long-term beneficiaries. I don't think that it will quite ever go back to the way we were. I think this has accelerated trends towards online uh, an online movement in commerce that was very much in place before, but it's greatly accelerated it. And, and another seismic shift, speaking of online, is working remotely and the impact that's going to have on, on how companies operate and also on commercial real estate. What is your assessment of the prospects for commercial real estate? I, I would say being in New York, it, it's, it, it's hard to see it being a, a particularly good development. In commercial real estate, there are a lot of Certainly, there are a lot of different parts of it. I would say urban office space clearly is going to be something that's going to be, it seems to me, under pressure for a while because you've just taught a lot of office workers. I'm in Manhattan. You've taught a couple million people that commute in here every day that they don't have to come in every day. And so companies are going to follow suit and they're not going to be leasing as much space. Now, there are other parts of commercial real estate more in the industrial side that might do very well. Maybe suburban commercial office space might do very well as people feel the need to be in person or with their colleagues, but not necessarily in major urban centers. So the differences in in commercial real estate will be wide, but it, it really seems to me that the biggest loser would be urban commercial office space. And let's ask about the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Given all of these changes that we've talked about, what's the one that you're most convinced about that you would have us uh, invest in? Well, I think just given all the things that we talked about with regard to higher government spending, I I think it would make some sense for investors to have some gold in their portfolio. And, And I tend to view gold in a portfolio a little bit like I view insurance which is to say that you, you hope it doesn't work very well, but it's important to have it. Right. You're, you're hoping you don't have to use it. But gold over the last two years, if you can believe it, has actually outperformed the NASDAQ. And I'm not that's saying- incredible. That's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> I'm not saying that's going to continue, but it also it, it seems to make some sense to me that you want to hedge against higher inflation, and gold may not be a bad way to do that. There's an ETF, GDXJ, which are the junior uh, gold miners, which are a leveraged play on, uh, on gold extraction companies. And it seems to me that's not a bad place to put some of your money. Again, not a large portion of it, but some of it for protection for the potential of higher inflation. All right. Jason Trenner, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. Once again, we really appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is give your financial plan a COVID analysis. What pandemic changes can you apply to your lifestyle? Which activities really mattered? Which didn't? Which expenditures were critical? Which were secondary? 
This is a really good opportunity to make the pandemic-induced habits of more frugality and savings a permanent part of your financial planning. Well, next week, we look at China's comeback from COVID with Robert Horrocks. He's Matthews Asia's chief investment officer. In our extra feature, we'll ask Jason Trennert about how the pandemic has changed his financial plan. And thank you if you're connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. We also appreciate you spending your precious time with us today. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.